Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. In the vast, complex, and enormously challenging landscape of global health, the story of malaria has most recently been one of great progress and even great triumph. Many Asian countries, including Thailand, are on the verge of eliminating the disease entirely, demonstrating a 90% decrease in cases over the past 15 years. Standing at the forefront of this fight is Harvard-Westlake alumna Jui Shaw, who leads a malaria elimination team in Bangkok, partnering with Thai leadership to collect and translate disease surveillance data, designing new strategies and policy considerations, all to bring the country eventually, ideally, down to zero. In this episode, Jui describes both the nature of her work and her journey crediting in part the transformational impact of financial aid. Whether at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown or in Nini Halkett's AP Human Geography course at Harvard-Westlake, Jui was able to access the skills, training, and cultural curiosity she now owns through the availability of need-based financial aid. Today, Jui chooses to pay that gift forward through her work in Thailand, stating she feels not the pressure, but, quote, the responsibility to do something meaningful with all of the investment that has been made in her. This is The Supporting Cast. Supporting cast. Hi, and thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for being here. And I should mention to start off, we are very far from one another right now. This is certainly the longest distance <laughs> that a supporting cast conversation has ever traveled. Let's start with that. Where are you right now in the world, and how are you? Well, I'll answer the first question first. I'm in Bangkok, Thailand, and I'm doing great. It's seven o'clock in the morning. I'm on my first <laughs> cup of coffee. And yeah, we're far, but one city of angels to the next city of angels. Oh, is, is Bangkok known as the city of angels as well? I didn't know that. It is. Yeah. It actually has the longest formal name of any city in the world, I think. And I, I can't pronounce the entire thing, which is many, many, many more syllables than that. But it is the city of angels. So I love that connection. Wow. I didn't know that. I'm already, I'm sure we're going to learn a lot during this hour, <laughs> but I'm, I'm already learning something about Bangkok. And yeah, we to find a time that both of us would be available, uh, given the time difference, was a challenge, but I'm glad we're able to connect today. So I really want to talk first about the work that you are doing uh, in Thailand. And it really centers, from what I understand, around malaria elimination. Let's start a little bit with kind of over the last five, 10 years, what's been the progress around malaria elimination? Where were we five to 10 years ago with regard to cases, and, and where are we now? 
Well, we've had tremendous progress in malaria in the last 10 years and the last 20 years. There's been a renewed interest in malaria as a topic, a renewed drive to eliminate malaria, meaning getting down to zero local cases. And we've seen tremendous success across the globe. Here in the Asia region, in the greater Mekong subregion, we've seen a 90% decrease in cases wow. in the last 15 years or so. Wow. So we're really talking about last mile activities here in this region. And for Thailand in particular, we're really talking about getting down to zero in a very short timeline. Got it. And, and I want to get to your work, which is particularly around the surveillance of malaria cases. But first, you know, we're all coming out of this pandemic where we now have this newfound understanding of the importance of vaccines and around tracking cases and what are the instruments first that people are using to eliminate malaria in Thailand? It's really the same basic building blocks as what we've been hearing about in the news with COVID. So contact tracing is the main way that we do surveillance with infectious disease because we know that when one person gets sick, the most likely scenario is other people get sick nearby that person. And that's the concept of contact tracing, right? It's if somebody went to a particular place or traveled in a particular location, it's likely that the infection would be spreading in those places. And it's the same way for malaria. We do contact tracing. It's a bit more complicated for malaria because we have what's known as a vector. So unlike COVID, which transmits from one person directly to the next person, mm -hmm. malaria requires the mosquito to be in between those people. But at the end of the day, the mosquito can't travel that far in one day. And so even there, there's a limitation in how far you'd find one case from the next. So that's really the basis of surveillance for infectious disease is trying to identify where the cases are. Um, and when you get to an elimination setting like Thailand, it just becomes a, a bit more proactive. So rather than waiting for people to fall sick or show symptoms and show up at a health clinic or a health facility, we're actually actively going out into communities where we know there could be higher risk of malaria and screening people and testing people there. And is there a medication that people are taking or a vaccine for malaria the way there has been now a, an effective vaccine for COVID? So WHO just approved uh, the first malaria vaccine, and that's mm. the first vaccine ever created for a parasite, which is extremely exciting and groundbreaking. Wow. And that just happened in 2021. It's a vaccine that's most relevant for the African context because there's different types of malaria, and the type here in Asia is just not as it's it's just not really factoring into that vaccine right now. There are some new candidates coming down the pipeline, but the best tools we have and what we're really fortunate to have in malaria is we have extremely effective and low-cost testing and diagnostic tools and then also treatments. And the treatments vary depending on both the type of malaria you get, and then the context. Because one of the challenges we've seen time after again in malaria is we lose the efficacy of our drugs. And that's one of the biggest challenges we have here in the Asia context. And one of the things my team is tracking very closely is are our drugs continuing to stay effective mm. and clear malaria parasites completely from each patient? And is that because the mosquitoes 
the the infection of the mosquito continues to evolve, kind of like COVID continued to evolve? Absolutely right. Yeah, everything in biology is trying to stay alive and find a way to adapt to different barriers we throw its way. I mean, the parasite is very wily, and if we throw something its way, it tries to dodge it and figure out how to avoid it. And so every time we've lost the potency of our malaria drugs, it's always started here on the Thai-Cambodian border. And so this is a very special region to be working on malaria. And one of the reasons we're so keen to get down to zero malaria cases quickly is because then it avoids that issue of having to develop another generation of drugs. Right. It becomes a moot point in that case. And it's better for, for the Asia region, and it's also better for every malaria country in the world. And what about kind of old school tools, you know, bed nets, insect repellent, long sleeves, long pants, things that, you know, someone traveling to Thailand on vacation might kind of bring along with them. Those are the best tools we have. They're really Mm. fundamental to most malaria programs around the world. We have here in Thailand, it's not only the bed nets, it's also insecticide-treated hammocks for people who sleep outdoors or who sleep in forested areas. Because the epidemiology here is very closely tied to forest, forested areas along international borders with a lot of communities who have a lot of disincentive to be found by public health authorities or other types of formal authorities. And so um, there are a lot of tools that are trying to meet people sort of where they are in ways that are safe for them. And some of the best things we have are the wearables that you mentioned, the nets, and spatial repellents as well. Right. So those old school tools are just as valid now as they were decades ago. And, uh, you know, before we get to you and your story, I'm curious about the the human piece of this. I mean, your role is to do surveillance for elimination, which I imagine requires a lot of data collection. Uh, you can be looking at an Excel spreadsheet, but each one of those numbers is a person, right? A person who's been impacted by a disease or not now impacted by disease and would have been, say, five, 10 years ago because in part of the work that you do. Take us into that. Take us into the the human reality of this work. Yeah, I love that question. So much of surveillance is about these numbers in aggregate, but my particular role and the way that my project and team are set up is really working at a cross-section of data and policy. Mm. And that involves a lot more of that human side because what we do is transform data into meaningful stories. Not everyone is going to be excited about data and results and quantitative numbers. And what we have to do is find a way to tell stories that are compelling to decision makers if we actually Mm. want to change policies, if we want to define new strategies or adapt new tools that are you know, just being rolled out for malaria, or we want to advocate for more funding. We have a funding gap in malaria right now. And if we want to address any of those things, we have to have our stories resonate with our audience. And that means not just displaying a bunch of numbers. We have to find a way to turn that into stories that are meaningful. 
My funding, my generous funding comes from the U.S. government through the United States Agency for International Development and the U.S. President's Malaria Initiative. And a big part of their role is, you know, being able to explain to American taxpayers how this money is being used and why. And a lot of that is the human interest side of things. So my team, yes, we're data analysts, but we're also storytellers. And I think working and living here a little closer to where malaria is a reality means people kind of understand that human side of things a little better because almost everybody has a story where they had malaria or they know somebody who has malaria, which is a little different situation than LA. Yeah. You know, it strikes me, so the intersection of art and science a little bit, right? It's the, the science of putting these numbers together, but then the art of telling the story of of the impact of those numbers. Absolutely. And so what if, if I were a policymaker, <laughs> uh, what would be the story you would tell me and our listening audience uh, about what more funding and greater attention on malaria elimination would mean to Thailand? Well, Thailand's in a very special situation right now. So we've actually seen a small increase in the number of malaria cases this year, which is opposite the direction that we've been going in the last 15 years. Well, actually, the last several decades. And it's complicated. I think it shows that malaria is tied to so many other things. You know, when we think about malaria, obviously we think about people and what's going on with people. We have to think about the mosquito, as I talked about before, and we have to think about the environment. And so much is related to social context and how people live and how people move and where people go and how they work also. And I think in times like this, where there's been so much population movement in this region, as people you know, move to different locations or shift jobs during COVID and after COVID and go into isolation and come out of isolation and, and shift careers maybe or try different types of work, it's created a lot of different dynamics in health-seeking behaviors, and that influences malaria. So right now, we, we're seeing changing dynamics in malaria in Thailand, and we need to kind of get a grip on what's really happening so we make sure we're able to meet malaria patients where they are in safe and effective ways. So now let's get to you, uh, Jui. I know that you went to Harvard-Westlake, but uh, I first, kind of before we get to Harvard-Westlake, tell me a, a little bit about your family. Where is your family from and where did you grow up in Los Angeles? My family is from India. My parents moved to the U.S. now many decades ago, so they spent you know two-thirds of their lives in L.A. compared to one-third in India. They still live in Sherman Oaks, very close to the upper school, and mm. that's where I grew up uh, alongside two sisters who also attended Harvard-Westlake. And how did you find Harvard-Westlake? Other than it being, it sounds like, kind of in your backyard, what was the decision, and not only your own, but, but what was the decision that you and your family made to send you and your sisters to Harvard-Westlake? It was so important to my parents that all three of us had an excellent education. It was such a big part of why they wanted to stay in the U.S. 
And every decision I think my parents made was for the benefit of our education for the three of us. So I'm not the oldest child. My my older sister is the one who attended Harvard-Westlake first. And my parents had an amazing experience with the leadership at Harvard-Westlake. My sister had a fabulous experience with teachers there. I think it was a bigger transition for her probably than for me, because I think by then my parents knew a little bit more what to expect. And I think it's always a little easier for the second sibling, but certainly it was a launching pad for all three of us. And my family has many stories of crushes that we have on Harvard-Westlake staff, faculty, and administration, and what a difference this school has made for, for all of us. And you, you know, a few years ago over during the pandemic, we asked for alumni to send in accounts of the impact of financial aid on their lives. And that was a voluntary thing that certain alumni decided to do. And you submitted a really thoughtful and memorable video about what it meant to you. And so I wonder, you know, knowing that financial aid made Harvard Westlake possible for you, can you talk a little bit about what it was like attending Harvard Westlake kind of with the assistance of financial aid? Yeah, I think the conversation around this has moved a lot. I've noticed in the time since I attended Harvard-Westlake, I think it was just very much not talked about at that time. So I was a grateful financial aid recipient, but it was very kind of personal and private information that I was not very upfront about at that time. And my sense is that the dynamics around that are shifting, and I think that's for the positive. It was definitely a transformational experience to be a financial aid recipient. You know, this level of education would not have been accessible to to me or to my sisters. Otherwise, my parents are so proud that all three of us graduated from Harvard-Westlake. And it set me up for a successful, you know, university experience. And then from there, what I see as, as a successful career. As a financial aid recipient myself in college and stuff, I, I'm curious and interested in how you talk about the evolution of the perception of financial aid and that, you know, in, in some quarters it's viewed as something we should be uh, quiet about. <laughs> and I know for many recipients of financial aid, it's a source of great pride. And so, you know, to, to follow up on that point, do you feel like it's something we should talk more about? Do you feel like, um, obviously it should be a voluntary exercise, <laughs> Uh, among recipients, but do you feel like it's something that alumni like yourself, if they feel that sense of pride, as I think you do, to talk about it? Yeah, I think this is an evolution absolutely in the right direction. And I think in general, there's more discourse happening around diversity and inclusion. I think that is linked with financial aid. And I do think it, yeah, I think it's something to be proud of. I think financial aid recipients necessarily are adaptable and resilient. I think every financial aid recipient has to be able to code switch in some way because they're moving along this continuum of of more affluent or less affluent. And so they need to be able to kind of navigate maybe different social strata or different different worlds because of that. And often there's also more than one dimension. It's not just a financial dimension. Often there's a cultural dimension or there's a language dimension. And so I think being a financial aid recipient, yes, it's an amazing opportunity to receive the same education and the same extracurricular opportunities as every other student. But there's also, you know, a lot of additional components of different things financial aid recipients have to navigate. And I think that should be a source of pride. Can you talk a little about 
about how you adapted in that way, uh, whether it was code switching or, or whether there were other hurdles that you had while there that upon reflection that you consider? Yeah, this is a great question. You know, what I said in that financial aid video prior was that I think navigating a lot of those social dimensions and becoming comfortable with being a financial aid recipient in a very affluent space set me up for not being uncomfortable about that at university because I mm. also went to um, a university where my parents always talk about this, that they feel like the wealth at Georgetown was so much more overt and visible and on display than it was at Harvard Westlake. Interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, just kind of navigating that those dynamics while I still lived in LA meant that when I moved to Washington, D.C., it was one thing that didn't need to be at the forefront. And, you know, I could focus on all the other things that were new about, you know, living independently and living on the East Coast and being in a university instead of in a, you know, high school, all of those different challenges, I think, had my focus rather than navigating financial dimensions. How about your Harvard-Westlake experience with teachers and the experience on campus? And if there were any kind of particular teachers that were influential to you? I think my time at Harvard-Westlake really set me up for everything that came later. So um, for me, Ms. Halkett's classes in world politics and AP human geography were sort of fundamental to opening my eyes to the fact that okay, I'm interested in different cultures and different communities around the world, but this is actually a formal area of study. And this is something I could turn into an academic career. And then once I started thinking about that, then it was like, oh, wait, there must be actual careers that are related to these topics. And I'm going to find out what those are. So I, I thank Ms. Halkett for sort of planting those seeds. And I remember being up like on the phone for like six hours with a friend, developing this theory about how the formation of the EU was going to lead to a new world paradigm where every region had, you know, its own power. And there was kind of this, this dimension of regional power and regional influence and that's crazy, I think, you know, to get a teenager that excited about something that they're on the phone up at, you know, late at night thinking about these topics is pretty powerful. Yeah. So um, I would definitely say Miss Halkett was a big influence. And also Senor Zaragoza, who was my first Spanish teacher at the middle school. <laughs> it's so funny. I always think about him drawing these squiggly lines on the whiteboard to explain different types of tenses in Spanish grammar every time. I hear somebody making a mistake about these tenses. <laughs> I always think back about his lessons. He was always drawing these circles and squiggly lines, trying to translate grammar into visuals for those of us who are visual learners. And it obviously was effective because it's stuck in my brain for 25 years already. And so what were the activities you were involved with at Harvard-Westlake, other than your interest in sort of geography and Spanish? I did a lot of music at Harvard-Westlake both classical and jazz, which I love, and I miss that a lot. Actually, music is a smaller part of my life now. And I was on the swim team, which I also loved. And I miss being outdoors swimming all the time, but I will be at the beach this weekend, so I'm looking forward to that. Nice. And then after Harvard-Westlake was, uh, you mentioned, was Georgetown. And I'm curious about the, the decision to go there, what your experience was like there, and whether there are professors there that also influenced you, perhaps, in this space. 
Yeah, the decision was a little bit wayward, actually. Um, I wasn't set on Georgetown, but in hindsight, I'm so glad I landed in Washington, D.C. It's just been a huge part of my adult life, kind of the culture of D.C. and the introduction to kind of international politics and all these communities from around the world and diplomacy and the faculty at Georgetown who are, you know, there's a lot of adjunct faculty at Georgetown who are real practitioners and then teach a couple classes at Georgetown on the side. And Georgetown has a role that any professor teaching at the university has to teach at the undergraduate level as well. And that's amazing because as undergraduate students there, you have access to this phenomenal faculty. So in in retrospect, it was great that I landed there. And it, it, you know, is so central to all of my life in my 20s. And were there a particular faculty there that influenced you? Yeah, so I was in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, and the head of the Science, Technology, and International Affairs Department at that time, Chuck Weiss, was a big mentor of mine, as was another professor I had in the Justice and Peace Studies Department, Yumi Park. And I did my thesis on the intersection of justice and beauty technologies, actually looking at race and justice implications of skin lightening agents. Wow. And both of them were fabulous mentors in that process of qualitative research. And what led you into that field? What led you to an interest in kind of beauty techniques and equity? Just a conversation I had had um, with somebody at a summer job I had um, thinking about, you know, how do we define beauty? Who do we hold up as ideals of human beauty? Do they look like the rest of the population? Does that matter? Does representation matter when it comes to beauty? And here, this is another conversation I think has evolved a lot since that time. It's been 20 years since I was working on that undergraduate thesis. And yeah, we're seeing a lot more diversity in models and in other kind of high visibility spaces. And I think that's wonderful to see. And so you graduate from Georgetown Take us through the journey of kind of how you get to Thailand and working on malaria. And then, of course, whether there were people within the kind of international aid space or the foreign policy space that influenced you. Of course, there are people. Life is about people. And there's been mentorship in every chapter of my life. I'm so grateful for that. I somehow have had this magical luck to have never had a bad boss Mm. knocking on wood here. And I've just been, I've been fortunate to be observing leadership in action in every role I've had since school ended. So my work in public health started with internships in Washington, D.C. When when I first got to Georgetown, everyone was talking about internships. I got to get this internship. I can't wait to intern. And I'm I didn't know what an internship was. (laughs) I was like, what's everyone talking about? I got to find out what this is. And then I found out it's just a fancy word for unpaid labor. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I have some challenges with the idea of internships, but I, I found a paid internship which was important for me at that time. I had to be earning money while I was in school. And I found a paid internship with the Reproductive Health Technologies Project, which was an amazing little organization run by Kirsten Moore. And I had um, the oversight of Arielle Lutwick. And that led me to my next role at PATH, 
which is one of the major players in global health work. And I was hired there actually by a Westlake alumna. Oh, is that right? Mary Ellsberg, yeah, who is one of the foremost researchers on gender-based violence. So she and Lori Heisey hired me to work on microbicides, which are um, also a reproductive health technology and HIV prevention technology. And that path, you know, I spent a couple years working in the Washington, D.C. office. And then I spent a few years working in the Cambodia office of PATH. So I moved to Phnom Penh, and at that time, the Cambodia office was under the leadership of Michelle Gardner, and, you know, she kind of showed me what it's like to be leading a team in one of the recipient countries of this kind of international aid work, and that was really a transformational experience for so many reasons for me. Mm. I was in Cambodia for a few years and I'm now back in Asia a few years later working here in Thailand. And can you talk about a little bit of the impact of that work at PATH, what you were able to see and experience while you were there? For me, the biggest thing about Cambodia, Cambodia is an amazing place. It, it's a small country that got a lot of attention for horrific genocidal attacks in the 1970s. And because of that, it's had a very large focus in international aid. So what's happened is that there's so many programs with an interest in doing good in Cambodia with less regulation and less kind of strategic direction, mm. I think. And so being in that environment as a very young professional made me really ask questions about how do we know what's working? How do we know what we want to continue to invest in? Like what's really great work versus mediocre work? And that's really what led me back to graduate school to look at research and evaluation science because mm. I wanted to be able to answer those questions about how do we do this work but do it well? And how do we know, how do we measure so that we know we're doing things well and having the greatest impact possible? Right, because the, there are so many nonprofit organizations, uh, small and large, with their hearts in the right place and wanting to do good work. Absolutely. But if they aren't yes. measuring their impact and knowing that they are accomplishing their theory of change or whatever it is. Uh, Absolutely right. Yeah. That is an essential component. So that really led you to then go to graduate school? Yes, exactly. I went to graduate school at Johns Hopkins in the School of Public Health there and focused on evaluation science. And then I was looking for an evaluation job after school finished, and the one I found was a malaria role. So up until that time, I had really been working in women's health, which is my first passion in public health. Yeah. But, you know, after graduate school, it's not, you know, <laughs> you don't always choose your own job after graduate school. I felt like I needed to take yeah. what was available. And I figured, you know, I'll work in malaria for a couple of years, understand the building blocks of evaluation, and then be able to apply that to women's health sometime down the line. Well, that doesn't always work out the way we imagine it's going to. And I ended up with an amazing boss, Yasume Ye, who has taught me everything good that I know about both malaria and leadership. And now I've developed a lot of niche knowledge on malaria measurement. And that's really how this job that I have now landed in my lap is it's, it's an exact match for what I was doing. 
but a huge jump up in terms of responsibility and visibility and ability to make change. And what is your role now? What specifically is your role? So now I lead a team at RTI International that works on supporting the national malaria programs in Thailand and Laos to transform their surveillance data into what we call strategic information, which is data that's packaged in a way that can provide evidence for policy advocacy or decision making. So you mentioned Yasume Ye is a former supervisor of yours, and you mentioned that they're this incredible leader in this space, what makes a great leader in this space? I think taking the time to listen to your staff and their needs and finding the right role for them is key to leadership. So, you know, Yasme is somebody who he's one of the most hardworking people I've ever met, but he never imposes that on others. And he always makes you feel like he has time for whatever you need to talk about. And that's something I try to emulate now in my role. I feel like my purpose here in Thailand is leading with compassion. And I think I learned that from observing him and watching the way that it's not about just numbers. It's not just about writing the final reports. It's about the fact that this work is designed to influence and help people and make a difference in people's lives. Malaria is a disease that affects poor people, and we are in a position of privilege where we're able to talk about that poverty and try to address some of the facets of it. And I think that's an enormous privilege to have and one that keeps us going. I think it provides a lot of drive, but also one that, that we need to keep at the forefront. And I think somebody like Yasume does that. What do you love about the work that you do? I love my job. I get to look at very challenging and complex problems related to malaria, human dynamics, the environment, the mosquitoes, and then work with the ministry to problem solve and try to create, you know, all of the wacky ideas we can come up with, try to design <laughs> solutions and then get money to try things out, you know? And I, I think that's, it's a luxury to be in this role where I get to make decisions and try things, see what works, write up the results. I think even the failures are contributions to our global body of knowledge around malaria. And Thailand is very much an early adapter. It's, you know, we love trying new things here. And because of that, the whole rest of the malaria community is always looking to Thailand to know what's going on, what we're trying, what the results are coming out of Thailand. And a big part of our role is documenting what's going on here. Yeah. And I love it. I love that it's a combination of quantitative work and analysis, plus storytelling, plus diplomacy, plus arts. It's, you know, some of it is creative with the evaluation science and with the communications products we do. And some of it is very left brain. I love it. What's it like living so far from home? It's challenging sometimes, I will say. I think, you know, Bangkok is a city. It's like New York or L.A. People are always coming through Bangkok unless there's a raging global pandemic. 
<laughs> so, you know, living so far from home, yeah, there's some small challenges involved with that. The time difference to LA is 15 hours. You already alluded to how challenging it is to schedule, you know, face-to-face -face time. It's hard to stay in touch with people because of that. But they're small challenges. They've just been compounded with COVID. Thailand had a very strict border policy related to COVID. And so for a long time, we essentially couldn't leave and couldn't receive visitors. So we're starting off 2023. I feel just so optimistic. There's so much momentum right now um, because we're just starting to come out of these couple of years of, of, you know, sort of compounded isolation, not only that we're so far away from home for me and others like me here, but also we're able to receive visitors. I have a friend who just arrived from Berlin last night who was asleep in the next room. And it just feels like there's there's a lot of renewed energy now. So I'm, I'm happy about that. And if, you know, there are Harvard Westlake students who are interested in global health and want to make a difference, there's plenty of difference to be made here in L.A., of course, and here in the United States, but there's so much impact that students with a Harvard Westlake education can make very far from Harvard Westlake's campuses. Kind of what would your advice be? Get out there and see things. Try what you can. I think you're not going to learn about global health just in the classroom. So it's so important to be out talking to people, meeting people, seeing what resonates with you. And I always say that there's, there's really a role for everybody in global health. You don't have to be a global health person to contribute to global health goals and global health ideals. You know, you can be a dentist, you can be an artist, you can be a carpenter, and all of those types of skills are needed for public health goals as well. Like one of the best ways to reduce the number of malaria cases is with better infrastructure. Because if you have better housing and you have better plumbing, you don't have open pools of water where mosquitoes can breed and you have screens on your windows and you have a door on your house, those are all barriers to mosquitoes and interacting with mosquitoes. So there's so many different ways people can contribute to global health goals. And any students who are interested in infectious disease or in global health more broadly can figure out what are the skills and strengths they have and then how can you link those with global health goals. I like the kind of the practicality of that. You know, a lot of people think, I want to work in global health or national aid work. I need this big heart and this sense of compassion, sense of empathy, and I'm sure all those things are important. But to build screens takes carpentry, right? It takes, you know, the ability to work with wood and to work with wire. Yeah. Uh, those are practical, hard skills, not just soft skills. Absolutely. So before we go, there are some get to know you questions as part of the supporting cast. They relate to Los Angeles. I don't know how often you're able to get back to town, but LA is known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So what is Jewie Shaw's favorite movie? I always answer this way, this question in the same way, Miss Congeniality. It's not because I think it's the best movie ever out there, but I love film. I spent a lot of time at the Lemley when I lived in LA as a Harvard Westlake student. And it's just it's too hard to choose one. So I just have this standard answer that I started giving for icebreakers in college. And I always say Miss Congeniality. And that's Sandra Bullock. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
<laughs> Which apparently is on all the time on TV now because my best friend from Georgetown, every time it's on, he's like, "Oh, Julie, this congeniality's on," and I'm thinking of you. And I'm like, "How? How often is this movie? Who's watching it all the time?" Second question: What is your favorite meal in LA? It could be a restaurant you love when you're back home, or something、uh, your family or you make at home. Yeah, well, if it's not coming out of my mom's kitchen, would be my first choice. Then it's tacos from a truck. I am so、yeah. far away <laughs> from taco culture here in Bangkok,、um, or Carnival Restaurant on Woodman Ave, which is my family's absolute favorite. Yeah, can you find、uh, Mexican food in Bangkok? I mean, I'm sure it's not the same, but is there a spot that has tacos in in Bangkok? Yeah, actually, last time I was in LA, I was at a party, and somebody was like, "Oh, you live in Bangkok?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Oh, my brother lives in Bangkok," and I said, "Oh, what does he do there?" And he said, "He runs a taco shop." <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> I was like, "What?" Yeah.、Wow. So you can get yeah birria tacos here. There are a couple, but it's not the same. We're so、right. far from Mexico here, and in my experience, the further away from Mexico you get, the worse. Results are. <laughs> I, I think that's true. My friends in New York City who always try to introduce、exactly. me to the next great Mexican spot don't really know what they're talking about, do they? Exactly. <laughs>、uh, all right. Third question: What's your favorite place in LA? My favorite place in LA is Hollywood Bowl. I love it. You get to sit、yeah. outside, dine al fresco. You see this amazing cross section of LA life. The mountains are there. Incredible performance. It's all of the best parts of LA in one location. Last question. I am the parent of two little girls. I have a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. I know you are not a parent, but I always ask for parenting advice as the last part of this conversation. I'm curious if there. Is anything about your upbringing as a young girl? And you had two sisters, you said,、um, and I have two girls. My wife is one of three sisters, so this is part of our family for sure. <laughs> Any advice you can give to me about the way you and your sisters were brought up that can be instructive to me as a, a young dad? We were brought up to do everything and try everything. And I, I guess maybe from where I sit now, I would encourage parents to try to travel with your kids. I think、mm. it just exposes us to so many new things, new ideas, new stimulation.、Um, I think it's so valuable to be able to travel as a young person. And for me, and for my sisters, spending our summers in India at my grandma's flat. You know, that's where I first started to see inequality and ask questions, and and I think it's just such wonderful exposure. So, do you feel like I was going to ask you about what your travel experiences were that actually led you to this work? Do you feel like it were it was those family trips to India and seeing the the disparity in how people live? I think that always planted questions in my mind about like, oh, how did why is my family in this position and other families are in,、yeah. in that position? I think those questions are really natural for a young mind to ask. So I think that was always in in the back of my mind, you know. And then and then, like I said, moving into a more formal education space to talk about social dimensions and and inequalities around the world and different communities with Miss Halkett's classes and beyond. Absolutely, was influential in the kind of work I do now, and so were some of the the early travel opportunities I had. So I was a a study abroad student both in high school and in college. I spent one of my summers at Harvard Westlake. I spent in Chile. 
um, mm. doing a homestay. So I stayed with a Chilean family that I'm still in touch with. They're absolutely lovely. And then in, in college, I spent time in Spain and in Malawi. And all of these experiences contributed in different ways to me. And like I said, I think living overseas and traveling overseas is so stimulating. You're learning new things all the time. You're challenging yourself all the time. Because I think as adults, we get used to doing things we know how to do and things we like to do. And when you sure. live overseas or when you travel overseas, you're necessarily at the bottom of the barrel sometimes. You know, you don't speak the language. You have no idea what's going on. It's like you're an infant all over again. And you have to learn a lot of new skills all the time to keep yourself fresh and to keep yourself um, to adapt to the circumstances. And I think it's really it's really good for us. I actually want to end on one other question and point, and it's, it relates back to this notion of financial aid. There's so many reasons why people support Harvard Westlake, support financial aid, so many reasons why it's impactful here on campus. But one reason that people often talk about is that the students that are impacted by financial aid at Harvard Westlake will go off into the world and make an impact of their own. And so if someone is sitting at home thinking about the impact they can make here, I wonder if you're somewhat of the example of that impact paying it forward. And do you think about that? Absolutely. I think the philosophy of paying it forward is so important to me. Georgetown also has a huge culture of social justice and advocating for the poor. I think that all of those teachings were fundamental to my own evolution and my philosophy. And I feel so much responsibility to do something meaningful with all of the investment that's made in me. I have had so much opportunity with all of these mentors, all of these amazing presences in my life. And I feel yeah, yeah a lot of responsibility, not in a negative or pressure pressured way, but I feel like right. I have the opportunity and the trajectory to, to do something meaningful with that set of skills and those resources that I do have. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm proud to be doing that. Well, we're proud of you at Harvard Westlake, Jewy. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from across the world and joining the supporting cast. Thanks, Eli. It's been lovely talking with you today. You as well. Thanks again. Thanks again.